Welcome to the Defense and Airspace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. A banking crisis that began in the United States with Silicon Valley Bank has spread to claim Signature Bank with billions flowing to keep Republic afloat and now apparently impacting Credit Suisse as Swiss authorities fast-track the bank's acquisition for $1 billion to UBS. The Pentagon detailed its $842 billion defense spending request as Britain unveils its integrated review as well as defense and national budget plans. The U.S. administration has also issued its National Aeronautics Science and Technology Plan. Australia, the United States, and the United Kingdom, the AUKUS nations announced the deal to equip Canberra with nuclear-powered attack submarines with a little bit for each of the countries involved in order to help deliver uh, a vitally important capability to better deter China. Poland and Slovenia agreed to send 17 MiG-29 fighters to Ukraine, seen as opening the door for others to follow. What Russia's downing of a Reaper in international airspace over the Black Sea means for the future of medium-altitude, long-endurance, unmanned aircraft like Europe's 7 billion Euro, Euro drone program. Rheinmetall is increasingly becoming Europe's most successful defense contractor, posting strong earnings and facing a very bright future. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, thanks so very much for for joining us and happy Sunday. Great to be here, Vago. Yeah, thank you very much, as always, Vago. Happy Sunday indeed, Vago, great to be here. Uh, indeed, indeed, a pleasure, especially two of, as two of our number uh, this week uh, are on the move, so we are threading a uh, scheduling needle, so thanks very, very much. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage and our coverage of the air and and Space uh, Forces Association's annual Aerospace Warfare Symposium was sponsored by GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and Helicon Chemical. And our coverage of South by Southwest was sponsored by Bell and Leonardo DRS. Again, uh, everybody, great to have you uh, on the program. Uh, we've got an enormous uh, amount of news. Uh, and Ron, I want to start with you as we start every uh, week, right? I mean, a lot of dynamics going on, a, a banking crisis. Uh, the next week is expected to be uh, a bumpy one, uh, in part as everybody scrutinizes uh, the business practices of, of major banks, especially after what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank, uh, the government uh, agreeing to indemnify uh, depositors for more than the customary $250,000 per business and $250,000 per personal uh, account uh, holder. That's uh, a significant change, but done to, to stabilize uh, markets. We, we have the Credit Suisse uh, UBS uh, deal. And then we've got a giant uh, American defense budget uh, that landed. Help us make sense uh, of the week and how the group performed against these broader uh, dynamics. Yeah. I mean, you said, I mean, there was a, a lot going on. Uh, interestingly enough, if you look at the S&P on the week, even with everything that happened, the S&P was up a little bit. It was up a percent and a half. If you look at um, our group, uh, it was it was mixed. I mean, you just kind of draw out some numbers here. You know, General Dynamics was down about a percent. Boeing was down about a percent. Uh, Northrop Grumman was down 4%, um, Raytheon was down 2%. 
It was kind of all over the place, honestly. Lockheed was down three and a half percent. Embraer was the star of the week, up uh, almost seven percent. Uh, crude oil came down a, a bunch. Actually, WTI was uh, sixty-seven. We haven't seen that in a long time. Brent crude was seventy-three. The VIX index shot up to twenty-five. Uh, not that long ago on the podcast, we were talking about the VIX at about eighteen. Uh, so there are a lot of lot of dynamics going on. I think you know broadly on the defense budget, it was probably what a about what people were looking for. Um, we got some questions on it. And I think if folks do understand that, uh, you know, this is kind of the first ask and it's kind of kind of goes through the whole congressional process. I think there's more worry about, you know, do we do we end up in a CR as opposed to what the actual budget is? Uh, it kind of seems pretty binary to me, right? And you'll you'll get a, you know, Congress will add to the president's budget probably 5%, you know, Ukraine money on top of that, but you end up in a CR or not, right? So I think that the focus was on that. Um, I mean, the the banking sector stuff, I mean, largely it, it didn't affect our sector. We can talk a little bit later if you want on some thoughts on actually what the the, the banking sector, particularly the regional banking sector thing means for, for, uh, this, for the suppliers. But I think that's where we ended the week. Uh, and uh, I want to ask both uh, you and Sash, because Sash was, uh, you know, thoughtful about the implications, right? I mean, even though Silicon Valley Bank is in Silicon Valley and has a, a tendency of being seen as catering to uh, a U.S. technology sector, obviously there were British uh, innovative companies that had money there. And obviously the British government was, uh, you know, focused on sort of greenlining Barclays to take over uh, the bank's uh, British uh, operations. R- R- Ron, just real uh, follow up question on the on the budget. Um, it was a little bit lower, and we've heard senior leaders uh, lament, as pre- you know, in presenting their budget plans, that hey, look, you know, we lost money at the last minute, which is why some priorities dropped off the list. Was was that a factor at all in causing some in the group to drop? Right, like if you're expecting eight fifty, eight forty two is less, even even though eight billion dollars is not as big of a delta and that big of an amount of money. Uh, I mean, was was that at all a driver in this? I, I really don't think so. I mean, I think the street was uh, expecting like eight thirty-five. That was the number thrown around. So it came in a little bit, a little bit better than that. But but the reality is, I mean, as everybody kind of pictured this, and you know, um, Congress will have its say on this now, right? So this is just just the first the first ask. I guess one thing that I was surprised by, I was expecting to see the fit up in uh, probably twenty twenty six, twenty twenty seven above. Um, the one trillion dollar level and it and it's and it's not and kind of the feedback right. I got on that from sort of you know the, the Washington circles was they just didn't want to shock anybody so um, so we'll see I mean in the end right think about it if if you end up with you know 843 plus five percent plus a couple more percent for the Ukraine that puts you pretty close to 900 um, so if we end up spending about 900 this year a trillion is not that far away uh, it, it is it is an awful lot of money. And uh, ultimately, then folks start asking questions right uh, in, in the event that we um, have uh, economic challenges. And what is it you're actually getting uh, for that money? And we're, we're going to talk about the banking issue in a minute and how that could actually impact uh, uh, spending on defense, given the borrowing ability of the United States is getting increasingly uh, constrained, right? I mean, with, with interest rates. Sash, uh, walk us through. I mean, it's just a huge European week, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about it with the Reaper incident, uh, obviously with the continuing war, AUKUS also is a very uh, powerful UK story. And then we have the integrated review uh, with a 5 billion pound increase that might not exactly be a real 5 billion pound increase uh, to defense spending, rather you know, allocated for existing nuclear modernization programs. Uh, walk us through sort of uh, the week 
uh, and uh, what it, it means and how the group uh, performed, right? As there were banking jitters, spending, continuing war, good for Rheinmetall, uh, obviously. Uh, walk us through the week. Yeah, it was, look, in, in share price terms, it was a really strange week because I can't point to a single share price and how it performed during the week and say that was because of you know, any of the uh, any of the things that you just mentioned there. I mean, in summary, it was a lousy week for European aerospace and defence shares. They were down, you know, on average over four percent. The really poor performers were down seven to eight percent, and the good performers were down, you know, two percent. Um, so, uh, but you know, it, it, it's very odd when the two companies who are supposed to be the biggest UK beneficiaries of AUKUS, BAE Systems and Rolls-Royce, are two completely different ends of that performance. BAE was, was off 2.5% and Rolls-Royce uh, was off 7%. So, uh, I, I mean, my, my summary on AUKUS, let's be absolutely clear, is it's so far away in terms of benefits for almost any company that we cover. It's it's way outside even our forecasting range. No, you know, nobody nobody cares on stock markets at the moment, you know. Um, that there are much bigger challenges at every single company involved before we get to the uh, either the green the green promised lands or the you know the beautiful blue oceans of uh, of AUKUS. But uh, the sunny yeah, just, the sunny uplands the sunny uplands of AUKUS. Well, I yes yes that that too. Uh, or um, but so it, you know share price performance lousy for, for everybody, um, which is a you know, odd given that if one of the takeaways of the banking crises in the US and now in Europe is that central banks are not going to be able to increase interest rates as much as they want. So companies are going to have more of an inflation problem, but much less of a borrowing problem. Governments are going to have much less of a borrowing problem because uh, interest rates are going to be held, held low. But there was no uh, risk on uh, in the share prices we look at. The silver stocks didn't outperform the defense stocks, which you might have might have expected then. Um, I think it's just a lot of people uh, being very cautious about equity markets in general uh, at a time when you can't be sure whether your bank is safe. Let me just very quickly get this sense from uh, the both of you on how, uh, what the broader implications of all of this are, right? Uh, and not to resuscitate uh, one of my favorite expressions of all time, but Warren Buffett has it. It's only when the tide goes out, you realize who's been swimming naked. Uh, and this is, is this an outgoing tide and what does it mean for governments, their ability to borrow, their ability to reduce uh, inflation, right? I mean, it, you know, raising borrowing rates is a way that everybody does it. Um, right now, the UK has a lot of debt. The United States has a lot of debt. It's becoming an issue that could stop uh, members of Congress from increasing the borrowing limit of the United States, something the UK doesn't really face, <laughs> sort of political insane theater that uh, you know does not impact the Bank of England as a general rule. Ron, I mean, what are the potential implications of this? Because I don't know a single person who had a business over the past week that wasn't scrambling to move money around to make sure that they remain liquid or remain insured, right? I mean, the biggest pro problem with Silicon Valley Bank is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation insures you to $250,000 per you know, employee identification number, per corporation. That It's designed to force even the likes of General Motors to distribute their money across multiple banks uh, and, and multiple accounts. You know, where, where, where are we going and what does this mean for the smaller people in the ecosystem, as you hinted? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a or, good question. Or even at a bigger top line level, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question, Bargo. Um, and it, I mean, it's got different ramifications 
in different countries. You know, different countries have different set set up banking systems. I mean, the U.S. in some ways is kind of unique because we have this regional banking system, right? It's it's unlike a lot of countries where you have maybe three or four major banks. And um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, even though it was the 16th largest bank, was still a regional bank. And a, a lot of the banks that have been having issues are regional banks. And that's you know kind of how our system our system is set up. A couple, a couple points here. One, I am not the banking analyst, so I mean, this uh, is yes, just yes, kind of my my unofficial view on things. And then we can kind of focus on probably what it means in in our world more specifically. Um, the the assets that were at issue here were long dated government bonds, um, right. very different than in two thousand eight, where you had um, derivative securities that in many cases had no value whatsoever. Um, so it's, it's very, very different kind of creature. Um, and, and a lot of this kind of goes back to potential just mismanagement of a bank, um, misjudging uh, things like where interest rates are going, which is sort of mind numbing. You know, I don't think you had to be all that smart to say that rates were going to go up. But anyway, um, that and, and probably some aspect of a run on a bank and, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's distinctly different than 2008. Uh, the big money center banks are in a completely different situation uh, than, than some of the regional banks. Uh, when you think about our sector specifically, because um, this is a question that you know came up this week, uh, and I think this is a little bit more subtle, but I think it's important. When you think about the supply chain, one of the issues that has been spoken about at several industry conferences over the last, say, six months or so, maybe a little farther back too, is when you go down to the lower tier suppliers, they have balance sheets that are already stressed. You know, their 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 uh, amount of leverage is higher than maybe you know, we would seen historically. Um, many of them are preparing for a ramp that never happened because of COVID. Now they're preparing for another ramp. They're going to have to borrow money to do that for working capital for capex, uh, and that was difficult before. Many of these. Right firms deal with you know, regional banks that probably just got a lot harder. So when you go down and you peel it back to the, to the, you know, kind of the tier threes and tier fours in the supply chain, um, their life, at least from a financial situation, probably just got more difficult. And that probably means that the OEs or other sources or capital are going to have to come in and, and help underwrite them until all this stuff um, sorts itself out to support the ramp at both Boeing and Airbus. Um, uh, Sash, uh, your sense from a European uh, perspective, uh, and I should say that you know, on the one hand, it seems like uh, UBS is getting quite a deal on uh, Credit Suisse. On the other hand, uh, there are folks who think that a billion, even a billion dollars, is overpaying uh, for the property, and I mean that in by no disrespect uh, to mutual friends uh, who work at uh, Credit Suisse and its uh, subsidiary companies. Credit Suisse, first of all, um, looks like it, it looks like it will be bought by by uh, UBS tomorrow. A you know a classic Swiss Swiss deal. You 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 expect national banks to help other national banks in times of stress because that is what is most politically attractive, both to the politicians but also to the uh, individual countries, central banks. Um, uh, Credit Suisse over the last ten years or so has had an unparalleled ability among European banks to go and find a banana skin and then tread really hard on it and then wonder why it is that, that, that they slip. So it, it, it has been one of the one of the weaker banks in terms of European governance for, for uh, a very, very long time. Um, it, I, I rather agree with you. I think this is a, a tide going out moment and that we're seeing a, a, 
weaknesses that have been apparent but have not really ca been catalyzed in uh, the banking system, um, that you know that's going to change, and we're, we're going to you know we will probably see more. Um, just a point about um, SVB. There's been a lot of pushback from European banking regulators about the way that SVB was bailed out in the States, where people were saying, look, you know, and this, this was very well, very well covered in the Financial Times, the, the Fed and the FDIC should have let it go bust and let the um, uh, shareholders uh, and bondholders be wiped out. And anybody who had too much capital uh, tied up or too much cash in there tied up um, be uh, lose because Otherwise, you've just created a situation where um, a depositor knows they don't have to go and spread their money around. They don't have to be prudent. They can leave it all in one bank because you're going to get bailed out by the government. Um, and that, that's, that's caused a great deal of upset uh, among European regulators. Will anybody else notice? Perhaps not. But I, you know, I, th I think Ron's you know, view that this is just going to tighten uh, banking liquidity overall. Banks are not going to lend as much. The OEMs are going to have to step in effectively as quasi-banks. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and uh, I suspect also we'll, we'll see the OEMs having to um, provide more sales financing for some of their customers this year because they, the customers won't necessarily be able to get um, uh, sales financing for new civil aircraft anywhere else. Uh, Richard, uh, bring you into this and what the impact and implications are going to be, uh, including uh, to air carriers, right? I mean, at the end of the day, whether you're a leasing company or whether you're an air carrier, you're in the business of managing vast sums of money in a speculative venture, hoping hoping the passengers are going to be there for you, right? I mean, the, the, the bigger planes went away because traffic went away. The bigger planes are coming back uh, and, and folks are spending a lot of money to recapitalize some of them, right? I mean, 747s are being updated, uh, which I think a couple of years ago, you know, we, we were saying goodbye to the big airplane. You know, what's, what's the impact of all of this banking uncertainty on an enterprise both as defense and air travel that's that are both highly capital intensive well you know first and foremost i would definitely start at the supplier level as ron outlined before there's this hideous mix of high debt unmet expectations uh and perhaps most of all inflation that has really impacted the ability that second and third tier to uh, to get working capital raise capex just just like ron said that is unquestionably the biggest area of concern in this business. And it wasn't just the COVID-19 pandemic, it was also just the impact of the 737 MAX shutdown and whatever else. Right. And uh, as my good friend Kevin Michaels uh, points out, if it weren't for the Pentagon's program of accelerated payments, you would have seen a lot more than the you know, three or four bankruptcies you saw at the supplier level. From an airline standpoint, of course, it's, uh, it's, it's <laughs> yes, the, there is that great uncertainty associated with raising money, managing debt, and also being smacked by the giant mackerel that is inflation. You know, I mean, <laughs> the sad truth is this is the first time in the history of commercial aviation upturns that we're late to the party. We've all written and read lots about you know ah well first it was it was goods you know whether it's furniture home refurbishments or cars or ping pong tables that benefited from the vast quantity of cash that was injected into the economy um, rather than services rather than experiences and we all knew that but we didn't realize that the natural consequence of that would be that we'd be late to the party it doesn't normally work like that. Normally, commercial aviation leads the way in a recovery. This time, we're late, which means 
we're the last to hire people. <laughs> we're the last to buy stuff. We're the you know, last for just about everything, which means, again, getting smacked in the face by inflation. That's really not good. There's also the, you know, the dreaded risk of, of stagflation. If there is any kind of recession, some sort of downturn that impinges on demand, and, and, and thank God there, there hasn't. It turns out everyone was kind of all wrong about uh, a recession so far, you know, let's, let's check again in a quarter or two. But if you have that hideous mix of inflation, higher interest rates and slackening demand, yeah, that's, a, that's an unwelcome return to the bad old days of stagflation that you and I distantly remember from our, <laughs> from our youth. Um, no one wants that, right? Uh, no, uh, and I, I didn't realize that uh, the economic textbooks, I, I commend everybody to read the chapter on the uh, big inflation mackerel smacking you in the head. It's uh, a metaphor. It's, it's a metaphor. It's a compelling a metaphor. <laughs> it's a mackerel based metaphor. And, and, and I, for one, want to say I don't want to get smacked in the head with a mackerel uh, or, or, or any other um, fish uh, for that matter. We digress. Um, let me uh, take you. Um, let me ask you the, this question, uh, and I, I and whether or not I'm I'm being uh, suspicious. I mean, no disrespect to anybody, but the last couple of weeks, you know, we have been very critical about uh, Boeing, even though I think we have a lot of faith that Ted Colbert is going to and the team is working very very hard, certainly on the defense side of things, uh, to improve the prospects. I mean, we've we've considered uh, whether whether or not somebody should be ordering a tombstone for the company. Uh, unfortunately, and whether it's too late to make changes, even though those uh, in the company say, look, we're working as hard as we possibly can uh, to fix this uh, and understand the magnitude of, of, of the challenge facing the company. The last couple of weeks have been very good for the company. You have an E7 deal that went through under flexible contracting terms on cost plus terms. You have potentially, a, if Congress agrees, a, a massive shift that would uh, give Boeing uh, at least 70, 75, 76, whatever the number is, 79 of new uh, tanker airplanes to serve as a bridge until we get to a new program uh, in which you know Boeing is as likely to win as Lockheed is likely to win. Boeing might be more likely to win uh, in part because of its blended wing body uh, designs that it's been uh, pressing uh, for a long time. And as we saw in the, in the new National Aeronautic Science and Technology Plan, whether you think it's it's fluff or rhetoric, the administration is trying to align, you know, sustainability, speed, new air tra traffic system, and even hypersonic investment because the Pentagon is making a lot of hypersonic investment. Then we have 184 uh, uh, aircraft uh, Apache deal, international and domestic, which then raises questions whether FARA. Um, you know, full disclosure, Sikorsky uh, is competing against our sponsor, Bell. Uh, they were competitors. Uh, Sikorsky teamed with Boeing on, on Flora. Bell won that with a V280. Uh, we're looking next at the, you know, we'll see whether or not that decision will be uh, sustained uh, or whether the protest will be rejected and the award sustained. And uh, Flora is the next big thing that also pits uh, Sikorsky uh, against uh, uh, Bell. Um, and this would seem, you know, what, how, what do you make of this? I mean, is this a government strategy to sort of throw a lifeline and see if Boeing can can step up and 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 seize it ultimately? Yeah, or I is mean, this just they're just contracts and we should regard them as contracts, right? I mean, people in the government make abundantly clear we're not in the business of keeping anybody in business. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm, a, I'm at the end of the day, I'm a consultant, so I see a couple of dots, I, you know, connect them with a line. So <laughs> I can have to very strongly agree that there's a, a trend here, right? Oh, look, it's a trend. A couple, couple of points. Uh, but well, it's, it's three. It's three. three. Three starts to look like a trend, right? So no, anyway. I, think it's more than, I think it's more than three. The sort of missing fourth point, which I'm, I'm convinced is out there, is CX. You know, I mean, 
you look at the one missing area of investment in the Pacific pivot and the U.S. in general, it's, you know, that basically the C-17 fleet has been wearing out at a much faster than expected pace. It's it's going to be old one of these days. Uh, the C-5, you know, the, the the 59 or whatever it was that were re-engined under the M program, they're still going to be old as dirt by 2030 something. All of it adds up to the need for a new strategic airlifter entering service sometime in the late 2030s or early 2040s, somewhere around that. I, I can only think of one company that could plausibly do this right now. So that's another thing. But let's get into the, the sort of bigger picture, um, you know, industrial policy. Uh, do you, boy, you know, it is back, in, you know, in a very big way, whether it's CHIPS Act or you know, Inflation Reduction Act or any of the other acts, or for that matter, the European response, which is not to take the U.S. to the WTO. It's instead to have their own massive spending schemes and technology development roadmaps. Um, okay, it's back, which leaves the Pentagon as sort of the last place that doesn't really do it very much anymore. I mean, I've always thought that, and I'll, I'll wait for my colleagues to, to you know, chip away at this or, or agree with it, but I've always thought that in recent decades, Industrial policy is kind of the Schrodinger's cat of the Pentagon. You know, is it alive? Is it dead? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't show up in any of the KPPs, right? If you ever say to somebody, ah, clearly they picked company X because, you know, without it, company X is like, no, you dummy. The response is going to be, that's not in the KPPs. But on the other hand, you know, first of all, it beggars belief that there's not somebody thinking about the industrial base implications of contract awards. And also, if they really truly are agnostic on industrial base, they're the last part of the government that is not thinking in terms of industrial policy, because again, it is back very, very, very big time. Uh, so all this leads me to think that, yes, not only is there a bunch of data points being connected, but there is somebody thinking, gee, better think about keeping this company in business for large aircraft enablers, especially since, as we saw with the, the end of the, the announcement about the end of the Super Hornet and you know, the likely extinction of Boeing as a combat aircraft producer, they need to be incentivized to keep in on the enabler and lifter and whatever else front. Uh, so I can't help but think that there's a pattern here. Uh, Ron and, and Sash, do you, do you get that same sense from, from all of this? Um, I mean, it's hard to deny that there doesn't seem to be a pattern, right? I mean, I'm an analyst, not a consultant, and I too right. get, you know, you put three points down, it's easy to not, or it's hard not to draw a line. Um, that being said, however, um, these are contracts that had to happen, right? I mean, we, we need right. some sort of tanker, right? Who else was going to do it? Were you really going to do a fresh start or not, right? So even though, you know, the current tankers had its issues, um, most of those issues have been on Boeing's balance sheet, not the Air Force's, right? So right. Uh, besides the timeline for the Air Force, the Air Force really hasn't had to pay for it. Um, and uh, Apache, we, you know, we need some more vertical lift, right? It's uh, it's a great machine. So I, I don't know, it's probably a mix of both, right? Uh, there's a need and timing of contracts, and it also happens to happen at a time where it could really help out a big aerospace, important aerospace manufacturer, given everything else that's happened. Now, you know, the onus is upon Boeing now to execute, 
uh, right. I mean, right. E7 uh, in, in fairness, right. I mean, E7 has been in the works for a long time. Uh, the uh, Air Force's answer uh, to uh, the tanker is, look, it, it, the, you know, KC-46 is great. We just need a different penetrating tanker, given the nature of the mission in uh, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, you know, even with Farah and Flora, those programs are so far out that just about everybody, including the folks at Sikorsky, would say we're probably going to end up selling a lot of Blackhawks uh, and we're going to end up selling uh, Apaches uh, before we get to the other side of it, right, in terms of what first unit equipped for these programs are, are going to be. Uh, and if you consider, right, how long ago did the Blackhawk go to Sikorsky? And I would note, Bell still makes Hueys and still sells Hueys to other governments, including the United States Marine Corps, right? So um, the right, some of these programs could actually have a remarkably long life, even with a new airplane uh, that's going in. Very, very quickly, Sash, do you want to weigh in on, on this before we uh, shift gears to tackle what is an enormous slab of European news? Uh, look, I've got very little to add to, to Richard's excellent summing up of, uh, of, of joining the dots. I, I'm afraid I'm just going to say, you know, about vertical lift, I utterly fail to see what requirement there is for Apaches or Blackhawks on either the first or the second island chain uh, in a what is like to be a deeply contested uh, war against China. Um, vertical lift of any sort has neither the range nor the survivability. And, um, you know, I, if that's why uh, you're, you're buying, you know, a couple of hundred more Apaches, well, it, it's your money, but that is not a good use of it. Um, although, although the army would tell you, right? I mean, we're still going to be engaged in Europe and there will be land wars elsewhere. You know, it, it's not just only preparing uh, for one game. They would point out that vast chunks of their budget are going for the long range strike systems, uh, artillery, command and control, and all of those other things that they would need, uh, in, you know, air defense that they would need in an Asia Pacific context. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the highest intensity war that we have ongoing at the moment, which is in Europe, Helicopters have not featured since the first week because they all died. They all got shot down because it's a, such a dense air defense environment. You can't use vertical lift there. That's the astonishing lesson from Ukraine. Well, um, although the U.S. Army and the Air Force would tell you, well, but if it had been us, we would have established air supremacy, therefore would have been able to fly our airplanes. We're not giving Ukraine enough of the tools in order to be able to uh, to do the job, which may be changing. So this is a nice segue in the discussion. Uh, Sash, uh, lead us off. 17 MiG-29s, uh, certainly no absorption problems when it comes to uh, Ukraine being able to take these airplanes. Obviously, it's a country that has MiG-29s uh, in, in service. Uh, roughly half of the Ukraine Air Force has been uh, degraded uh, by uh, the telling of uh, the commander of the U.S. Air Forces Europe and Africa. As uh, General Skorchekar told reporters uh, at the Aerospace Warfare Symposium, Ukraine went into this with about 120 airplanes. They now have about 60. Uh, they're now equipped with JDAMs and harm missiles uh, and the like, which are changing uh, the dynamics. What does 17 airplanes mean? And more importantly, how many more airplanes can NATO cough up legitimately and put in the hands of Ukrainians? I should point out, Washington still says no to F-16s, uh, while two Ukrainian aviators have been under assessment at Nellis Air Force Base and simulators to see whether they can operate the F-16. Okay, 17 big 29s, net effect. Uh, it's politically important, uh, and the Ukrainians are very grateful for that. It starts to... Um, at least cause a leak in the dam, no more than that. Military effect, almost non-existent. Uh, you know, whether you put JDAMs on or harms on, you are, uh, you know, the Ukrainians will achieve 
very, very small tactical successes, uh, but likely at quite high costs uh, overall. It's, um, but you know, the Ukrainians are playing a much longer, term, lo longer game than this. They have to have, uh, you know, after the war, we hope is over, although you know, that feels a long way off at the moment. They've got to have some way to deter Russia and air, you know, air power will be part of that. But I think, you know, uh, we, we wrote a note this week where one of the things we analyzed was just how many aircraft are available in Europe. Um, now, I take the point about the, F the US says that you won't uh, supply F-16s. Very interesting as to whether you will allow other nations to supply F-16s, um, because there's quite a lot available. In total, we counted mm -hmm. up about 370 aircraft in Europe that are, that are becoming surplus to requirements and could be made uh, available to Ukraine. It's a mixture of F-16s. There's probably about 100 of those. Um, most of those are already being replaced by F-35s, and therefore... Um, they could, you know, they they could be delivered at, at no change to the military balance of the country is concerned. F-18s, you know, F-18 is is leaving service in Europe. Um, Spain, Finland, and Canada, which clearly is not in Europe, are are all um, trading their their F-18s in Finland and Canada for F-35s. They're going to become available. Eurofighter Typhoon Tranche One, uh, it's probably about sixty of those available, maybe more. And then early model Griffins, Mirage Two Thousand, AMX. So there's a lot of aircraft, and I think the MiG Twenty Nine deal is more significant for that than anything else. What does this do to future demand? Um, about half of those aircraft might be replaced by new orders, I orders that are not, not at present in companies' books or in defence uh, ministries' uh, future planning. So, you know, this could trigger another 200 aircraft uh, 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 or, or orders for another 200 aircraft, probably split. Uh, pretty evenly between uh, F-35, Eurofighter and Rafale, possibly a handful uh, of Griffins. That would be nice business for all the companies concerned at the end of this decade, which is roughly the timescale involved. Um, but I think we still need to sort of, we need to go beyond supplying form, former Soviet aircraft before we have, you know, we deliver any military gain uh, that, it, that, you know, that is really measurable. And uh, before then, the, the benefits to European and U.S. companies becomes apparent. Uh, as always, I want to tell our audience, check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by uh, Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marina, GE Aerospace Company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host with our very own uh, JJ Gertler. Um, let me uh, ask you, and, I'm, and then uh, go to Ron. And Richard, because they're sort of conjoined uh, points, um, and what the takeaways are of the uh, Reaper incident, uh, obviously an MQ US MQ9 operating in international airspace uh, over the Black Sea. There has been a, a an MQ9 or an RQ4 operating over the Black Sea in uh, a reconnaissance overwatch. Uh, position since the very start of this. I should also point out enormous numbers of other airplanes, right? I mean, there are rivet joints operating everywhere. There are U-2s operating um, right, right up to the border. Manned aircraft have combat aircraft support. Um, this did not. And a Russian uh, MiG-29 collided, or Suhoi, excuse me, collided uh, with it after dumping, trying to dump fuel on it uh, repeatedly uh, to obscure its sensors, which didn't appear to work. Um, What's the sense of what this means for the future of medium altitude, long endurance uh, programs, uh, including the 7 billion Euro, Euro drone uh, program, even though there are those who say still a lot of enormous amount of utility that comes from these platforms. 
It's just that you have to achieve air superiority. And once you achieve air superiority, they become very useful. If you're flying them in contested airspace without air cover, yeah, they're going to be vulnerable. The good news is the U.S. has 300 plus uh, MQ-9s that it can throw back in the breach when it when it needs to do so. What, what's your sense uh, on the macro drivers of this? And Richard and Ron want to get your guys' sense uh, on, on all of this, uh, on both on the fighter side of things and on the unmanned aircraft side of things. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, uh, look, I, you are in the US very fortunate to have quite that many reapers that you can you can throw into the fray if necessary. Um, and uh, you may well have to because, I, you know, when you look at the tracks of particularly the RQ force, the Global Hawks over the Black Sea, um, you can see the degree to which having one of these air, or minimum of one of these airframes there the whole damn time is severely uh, crippling the ability of the Russian Navy to, to sortie, let alone deploy and do anything useful. Uh, and so, you know, Russia, which thought they controlled the Black Sea, has discovered that actually there's somebody else sitting above it that is um, hampering their ability. That is a great advert for um, any large uh, surveillance platform. The problem is that the unmanned ones, the threshold for um, uh, you know, shooting it down or otherwise bringing it down is very, very low indeed, because you know you're not going to kill a serviceman. You're just going to wound somebody's pride a tiny, tiny bit. And unless we in the West put a, put a, a cap over every one of these aircraft when they're operating, and unless um, uh, they, it operates outside the, uh, the reach of Russian um, Century Series SAMs, um, they're going to become more and more vulnerable. There's quite, there's quite an interesting... Um, piece of analysis coming out now, which is just showing how Ukrainian use of uh, probably not medium altitude, long endurance, medium altitude, medium endurance uh, UAVs has dropped right down uh, in the last nine months or so. You remember they had a, a whole bunch of Turkish uh, Bayra uh, TB2 uh, drones, armed uh, drones, and we're using them to great effect. That's dropped down to almost nil now because as the Russian air defense envelope has been pushed forward, uh, into and over a large proportion of uh, Ukraine. Um, the average sortie survival time of these things is about three sorties. So it's costing about a million dollars per sortie at this price uh, for them to plink one or two tanks and to um, uh, achieve a degree of, of surveillance coverage over the battlefield. That's very expensive, even for a drone. In fact, it's unaffordable, even for a drone. And uh, you know, as a consequence, I think there is starting to be some question over why is Europe, I mean, apart from very obvious answers of um, uh, European pride and industrial strategy and all that stuff, which we all have our views on, but why is Europe spending 7 billion on Eurodrone? Because Eurodrone will be a peacetime and threshold of war only so, uh, capability. Once you go into war against a, a, an adversary with an air defense system, and that's Russia, because that is the enemy for, for, for Europe, uh, it's, these things are not survival, no matter what altitude they fly out, um, unless they are so far back from the, uh, the front line that they have the, uh, very, very little coverage. Uh, I, I, I've been fascinated by the degree to which the debate about UAVs has moved from male hail types to these very, very small uh, drones, which clearly give a great deal of local situational awareness at very little cost and are remarkably difficult to shoot down. But that's a different equation entirely from the uh, MQ-9 uh, Reaper infrastructure and setup that we are also used to. Richard and Ron, your guys take? Yeah, you know, a strong agreement. You know, it, it's been pretty clear for years that we're, there were a couple of issues with nail and hail, which is that they're, you know, 
probably much better in peacetime or times of limited war operations other than war or whatever else. But in a full-up shooting war, they would last, you know, five minutes. Hell, maybe a better chance because of altitude, but not much. Um, and that the future would indeed belong to something that used to be sold at Radio Shack. <laughs> That's pretty much it, right? Um, the other thing, the other point that was made by folks, and they were they were correct, that the UAV revolution would effectively lower the barriers, the threshold of conflict. That is to say, if you do have countries like the U.S. in the region, um, it becomes easier for the other side to down one of your aircraft, which becomes easier for you to justify putting a cap over them, which becomes, yeah, you, you can see the potential for escalation. I'm not saying we shouldn't be there by any means. I think we should, but you know, it, you could easily see how things are complicated by UAVs. Hopefully we've got rust, robust rules on, you know, it, escalation and of course, uh, engagement. Um, but it, it's an area of concern. I, I'm really interested by, um, you know, Sasha's comments about the availability of 370 combat aircraft that could be migrated over from, from Europe. And I, I think it, it gets quickly into to geopolitics. It's a fascinating issue. Um, I, I, you know, he mentioned Mirage 2000. I, I, that's really high on the list because France is so incredibly active in terms of what might be termed a, an integrated combat aircraft diplomatic process, especially in that part of the world. You know, they've used used aircraft to help sell planes in, you know, Greece, Egypt, Croatia, whatever else. It's clearly an Eastern Mediterranean strategy, you know, and coupled with an aggressive approach to combat aircraft sales everywhere and the clear message that we don't judge you, you don't have to ask for the keys to use their aircraft. I'd be very surprised if Macron didn't see the opportunity to take leadership here with Mirage 2000s because they do have a bunch of them and they are eager to go to an all Rafale fleet in the French military. So that to me is, is a really interesting possible next step. Um, I would uh, uh, point out that it, that it might be a next step if Emmanuel Macron is still in president in, <laughs> in, another, oh, yes. uh, in another week or so. And I, I don't mean to make light uh, of a situation, obviously an important reform. The debate is whether or not it should have been ran through the way that it was ran through, uh, ultimately. Um, Ron, I, I want to get your take uh, because there are two other issues we've got to discuss, and I want to kind of go around the horn on them. One is the AUKUS deal, uh, and I neglected, uh, Sash, to ask you about Rheinmetall uh, because it is uh, just an extraordinary story uh, for, for a company that was a, you know, an ammunition company, now is a, just a full-spectrum land warfare company, which has been just an absolutely fascinating transformation and grabbing business away from other people who were sort of seen as combat vehicle makers, you know, uh, which also is, is, is fascinating. Ron, I mean, your take on the fighter side, what it means, uh, demand and otherwise. I mean, again, I mean, I would point out, I think there is a complete role for medium altitude unmanned aircraft. I mean, Jim Townsend, former uh, Europe chief uh, at the Pentagon uh, on the Washington Roundtable on Friday made clear, look, I, well, just park a P-8 uh, over that, uh, over the Black Sea. And, you know, that's the end of it. And you get surveillance, reconnaissance, it's a manned platform. You've just, you know, you just made it a little bit harder for the Russians. They can try to harass you, then you put combat air patrol over it. You're in international waters, uh, right? Uh, and, and so uh, there are all sorts of ways of getting uh, the the kind of results you want, uh, even if doing it is is a little bit harder and and tougher. Again, the MQ9 you can use it all over the world if you have it fitted into an order of battle that includes uh, at least a degree of air supremacy or air uh, air controlled. Go go ahead and run. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly don't have a heck of a lot to add on on the uh, the male inhaled vehicles. I mean, ultimately, you know, they're high aspect ratio, slow flying machines, right? So right. they're they're just kind of sitting ducks, right? There's a time and place and proper use for them, right? So, um, so yeah, I, I I really don't have have a heck of a lot to add there. I mean, um, in in you know, do they have a purpose? Yeah, of course they do, right? It's just, it's just time and place. And I think that's kind of, right. the, kind of the most important thing there. Um, and then on, on, on the fighter aircraft front, I mean, from a kind of purely from a, you know, A&D sector perspective, right? Do, do I see, you know, perhaps ordering more F-16s or something like that? No, right? So, I mean, you know, from, from just kind of a pure industry perspective outside of maybe spare parts, I, I don't see a, a heck of a lot of upside to the U.S. industry. Uh, very good. Let's uh, go to AUKUS. Uh, Sash, your sense on the deal and what does it mean, right? I mean, uh, the two nations, uh, United States, United Kingdom, are going to forward deploy uh, submarines to Australia. Then it looks like the United States might supply five of the short hull Virginia class uh, attack submarines. That's going to be interesting in and of itself when the United States can't produce submarines fast enough for its own use. And there's a hope that the Australians will facilitate uh, for mutual benefit, they get submarines out of it, we get submarines out of it, and then the Australians would work jointly with the United Kingdom on the replacement to the astute class, which the Royal Navy has been thinking about for some time, transitioning to it, an upgraded astute, uh, if you will, um, with the pressurized water three, the PWR three plant that's going into the dreadnought. Um, you know, walk, walk us through what this means, because at the very top of the show, you said this should have moved the needle for uh, BAE systems and for roles. And it didn't. Um, and Ron, want to get your say, sense. Huntington Ingalls uh, Industries, obviously one of our sponsors, but Newport News Shipbuilding is part of uh, that uh, family. Electric Boat, uh, you know, both of these companies share production uh, of Virginia-class submarines. Um, and uh, HII certainly has an office down uh, in, in Australia as well. Kind of get, get both of your guys' sense on whether this is the right deal at the right time or something that's actually more of a pipe dream. And as naval analyst uh, from the Hudson Institute, Brian Clark points out, you're shooting at the stars. If you hit the moon, that's perfectly okay. Okay, so I'll start. Um, and I'll do it in, in, in hopefully two or three really small bits. First of all, the um, uh, replacement SSN project for the UK and now the UK and Australia, it will be as much like Astute as Astute was like the um, Trafalgar class submarines. When the Astute program for the UK was launched, it was referred to as Batch 2 Trafalgar, which was one of those classic ways right. of sneaking the, the sneaking the program past the politicians and past the bean counters in the Treasury. As everybody who has you know, seen even a very, very grainy picture of an Astute will tell you, it bears no relationship at all to Trafalgar whatsoever. They're very impressive right. boats. And the replacement or you know, the next generation will, will bear as little uh, uh, similarity uh, to the Astutes. These will be brand new. Uh, it'll be a, a brand new uh, design with a, uh, a, you know, a massively upgraded reactor and everything else. The, the Orcus deal seems, a, you know, very good, very well thought out. Um, uh, question: um, Let's assume that the US is able to pass over three or more even five uh, short hull Virginias to Australia. Uh, you know, these are let's say gently used. Um, and so forth. Once the Royal Australian Navy has got five Virginias, are they really going to give them back for a new submarine? Uh, you know, less than ten years time. I very, very much doubt it. I think um, you know, Virginias are basically an astonishingly expensive gateway drug. Uh, I don't see uh, you know Australia coming off that uh, particular 
uh, high once they've got them. Nobody ever, no, no rational person would do that. Um, but uh, you know, if if they do um, want to join uh, the uh, um, uh, the astute uh, replacement or the or the, the, the successor to to astute, then they'll get a very very capable submarine out of it. Uh, that will be very good for the UK submarine industry. What I think is most interesting about this, from the point of view of the UK submarine industry, is that what this does is this ties uh, the uh, next generation submarine development into UK uh, foreign policy in a way that makes it very very hard for either the navy or for the uh, treasury to restrict its funding anymore. Because every time they do that, um, someone will play the AUKUS card and just say, you can't do that. We have commitments to the Australians and the Americans. It's got, you know, so it's on rails. This ties up, it fixes a, a much bigger proportion of UK procurement budget um, over the next 20 plus years. Um, and may well possibly mean that, that other, other parts of the uh, budget get squeezed because that's all that's left for the bean counters to play with. Uh, so I think that's going to be a very, very interesting dynamic. But in general, you know, from the point of view of the UK, I apologise for being parochial, but um, the Navy really has won. I mean, the Navy is now the arm of UK foreign Pacific foreign policy in a way that not, neither of the other two forces have a prayer of, of, of being. Um, and, uh, you know, the Navy now it gets first, first um, cut of, of the budget every single year. Uh, it's, it's certainly an interesting development. Ron, what do, what do you want to add uh, to this? Because my sense is, I, I agree with uh, uh, Sash, right? Once, you know, the infrastructure, the training, once you get your hands on Virginia class attack submarines, it may be very hard to sort of make that transition uh, to another boat. And, and there is some sticker shock in Canberra over this, by the way, right? I mean, there was sticker shock over the old submarine deal. Now there's more sticker shock, and there are some who are actually actively asking whether it would have just been better off to have stuck with the original deal so that the Australians would have had that capability sooner uh, rather, rather than uh, later, even though this is sending a whole bunch of signals, but only if we can achieve it, right? I mean, if we're delivering boats by 2040, um, that's, there's a concern that that might be, or in the 2040s or late 2040s uh, would be problematic. Go, go ahead, uh, Ron. I agree with both you and Sasha on the on the Virginia class point. I would add, however, right. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can move around here, right? I mean, the U.S. could base some submarines there. You know, who knows what's going to happen exactly? But um, on the Virginia class front itself, I mean, clearly this is good for the, the contractors that do it. Um, if indeed three to five go to uh, Australia, that's three to five more than the the U.S. Navy would need to buy or they would sell them directly or whatever. It's it's just, it's more demand for submarines. And, you know, the key beneficiary, as you mentioned, but also one you left off that list is BWX Technologies, right? They build the, right. the power plants Sorry. for all these things, right? So right. If it, that that it's, you know, potential, you know, potential positive for them. Um, and then, you know, facilitizing Australia and so on and so forth, that's just going to take a long time, right? So, I mean, you know, it's just kind of back to the point you made. How quickly do you want these assets in place? And, and and that's I think that's a key a key variable here on ultimately what you do, and that's governed also by how much you're willing to spend. Richard, any anything brief you want to throw in before we go uh, to Sash and have him wrap us up on uh, Rhine Metal? Oh, just something calculated to do everybody involved, which is that uh, I'm not really 100% convinced that this whole <laughs> AUKUS C concept was a great idea compared to the idea of them investing in B-21s and, and long-range air power. And that would be so much more flexible and more easily achieved and, and God knows what else. Uh, 
but other than that, nothing to contribute. No, I think that that's a, a very uh, valid point. And, and indeed, I could even see the United Kingdom getting a lot of benefit uh, from uh, B-21s or an airplane uh, like that as well. But I'm not going to open that kettle uh, of fish uh, at, at, the, at the moment, uh, even though the UK is uh, really one of the most important F-35 partners we have. Indeed, one of the most important submarine partners we have. Missile compartment of Dreadnought in Colombia. Uh, our, our common missile compartment. Uh, Sash, real quick, Rheinmetall. Wow, what a Cinderella story, uh, even if the circumstances of it are uh, very unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, look, this was a business which um, five, eight years ago was, uh, well, actually, 10 years ago, Rheinmetall's defense business was in loss. The only thing that was keeping it going was an automotive components business. And um, uh, the overall business was capitalized at a, at a, at a couple of billion euros. And uh, had revenues about one and a half times that. Um, now it's a business which, you know, 18 months out, is going to have revenues of 9 billion euros plus. The vast majority of that, two thirds, three quarters even, is going to be defense. Um, and that's going to be making uh, margins, you know, certainly in double digits and probably into the, uh, in, in, into the low teens. What was interesting about their uh, fully results uh, that we had last week was um, specifically their focus on artillery ammunition. They have a joint venture in South Africa with Denel to produce very long range artillery projectiles. They've demonstrated an ability to fire 80 and 100 kilometers from a, from a 155 millimeter gun. Uh, they've clearly got an artillery capability in, uh, in Germany as well. And then are buying one of the two biggest producers of artillery ammunition left in Europe, in Spain, a company called Expal. So they're out there. Uh, game plan is that by the time they've consolidated XPAL from hopefully the middle of this year and then built up capacity, N24, early 25, they're going to have capacity of 600,000 rounds of 155 millimeter uh, per year. Um, and that will make them, they think, the largest artillery ammunition producer uh, in, in the Western world. Uh, this is the time, uh, this is probably the decade when you need to be producing artillery ammunition. What are they going to be sure or, you know, what, what do we worry about? It's actually going to be the components. It's going to be nitro, uh, nitroglycerin. It's going to be cellulose to make nitrocellulose, i.e. You know, gun cotton, um, the, the propellant for the rounds. It's going to be RDX and the HMX fillings for the shells. It's going to be fuses. All of those are going to be the bottlenecks now. But you know, the European Union is trying to uh, start programs to spend between one and four billion euros just on uh, artillery ammunition and, and rebuilding stocks and supplying to Ukraine. and an awful lot of the roads, they may not say end at Rheinmetall, but they sure as hell go through Rheinmetall at moment. Oh, and by the way, they produce armored vehicles uh, and quite a lot of other complex combat systems as well. So it's a very, very interesting uh, situation for a company that didn't even feature on most defense investors' uh, radar screens, for um, pardon the pun, uh, three years ago. Uh, well, I should, I should point out, right, even when Britain was looking for a new vehicle, it was seen as a real outlier and one with the boxer. Uh, and hmm. if you look at it in the United States, uh, where there's a competition ongoing, I think a lot of people have a tendency of missing it for a Bradley replacement. Rheinmetall is competing for that as well, uh, with uh, an entry that, um, you know, folks look at and say is a very, very compelling solution. Yeah, Lynx, which is the vehicle they're offering for uh, OMFV, uh, and they're also offering for an Australian requirement. It's one in uh, Hungary and looks like it's been down selected in Greece is a look, it's a beast. It's a big, heavily armed, highly mobile infantry fighting vehicle. It's totally unconstrained by 
the requirements for the Puma in Germany, which has to be lifted in A400M. Why? I don't know. It's unconstrained by the requirements of the Bradley, which is to be able to swim a river. No requirement for that. Uh, so it has fantastic protection, fantastic internal um, uh, capacity for uh, dismounted troops and a really good gun and uh, sensor system. What's not to like? Uh, indeed, uh, everybody. Thanks so uh, very much. Terrific conversation, everybody. Thanks so uh, very, very much for joining us. Uh, terrific discussion as always. Hope you guys have a great day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much, Vago. Makes my weekend, Vago. Great to be on. Thank you. Uh, same here, and a very special thanks to Bell for so generously sponsoring uh, this podcast, as well as our daily programs. Join us again for tomorrow's uh, show, where Sam Bandet uh, of the Center for Naval Analyses uh, takes a look uh, at the Russia war, which continues uh, to grind on, and uh, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners uh, helps us take a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. And that program is sponsored by HII. Thanks very much again, and we'll see you tomorrow.